Welcome to a new episode of the Macro Trading Floor. Every week, me and my co-host Alfonso Picaccello invite a risk taker or a macro strategist to unfold his or her macro thesis. But by the end of the day, we also want an investment idea on the table because this ought to be the most actionable macro podcast out there. I'm Andreas Steno. I'm Alfonso Picaccello. Today's June the 1st, 2022. And the week that we just uh, came across was actually pretty eventful, especially in Europe, where yes. um, inflation actually printed at almost 9% year on year in Germany. Um, inflation in Europe overall printed at 8%. Core inflation printed almost at 4%. Services inflation in France printed at two decades high. Okay, so I'm going to stop. I guess the message is pretty clear. We got some inflationary pressures in Europe too, Andreas, and we are so young that we can, we have no idea about it. How, how does this work? I don't understand it. Please help me out. <laughs> uh, well, you can see it in the supermarket at least. Um, so it's, it's very easy to feel it now. Um, I, I also noticed that if you look at the um, annualized rate of the three months change in the Eurozone inflation, then we're actually running at, I think it was 16.4%. Um, so it's it's very very remarkable now. Uh, I actually think that there um, is a link to what's going on in Ukraine in these numbers uh, to a much larger extent than the inflation that we've seen in in the U.S. Uh, since it's so uh, linked to, to what has happened over the past three months in the price formation. Uh, but boy, um, they will have to do some uh, sincere thinking within the European Central Bank over the next couple of months. Uh, because uh, let's just remind ourselves, they are still buying bonds in the QE program and inflation is running at 16.4% in annualized terms over the past three months. That's just crazy. I yeah, come pretty, on. Much. Yeah. pretty much. But okay, they're going to uh, try and uh, put a stop with QE for sure. The first day of July, they're going to say, oh, we ended QE in uh, Q3. First day of July qualifies as Q3. And then the July meeting is going to be fun in the September too. And the market, Andreas, has been uh, pretty much screaming at the ECB that they have to get their act together. So if I look at my uh, volatility adjusted market dashboard, which I published as well on the Macro Compass in the last article, it, it looks at cross asset moves in a volatility adjusted basis. And it is screaming red to me in terms of large Sigma moved more than three standard deviations in front end European swaps, which reflect the pricing the market is assigning to ECB deposit rate to be over the next year or two. And we're also now repricing the so-called terminal rate higher. Because Andreas, in Europe, we need to discuss for a second that while the, the US actually comes up with this dot plot and they have all this median estimate for uh, neutral rate and, uh, you know, where is the median dot according to, to the committee? In Europe, we don't have such a thing. So once you start talking about hikes, what does it mean exactly? H hike until neutral? What is neutral in Europe? How does that work? Well, we essentially don't know. Uh, and that's one very interesting thing uh, when it comes to this hiking cycle that will likely commence from the European Central Bank this summer. Um, we don't really know the target. Uh, and I think the market will eventually have to test uh, the European Central Bank on that exact topic because the market can obviously try and steer the uh, discussion towards um, a, a level for the neutral rate uh, and the European Central Bank will at least have to respond to it 
uh, rhetorically if if they find the developments to be too um, extreme. Uh, but for now, um, all that we know is that Lagarde basically promised to bring uh, the uh, the interest rate back above zero <laughs> before the end of the year. That we know. Um, but I mean, why not go even further than that? Um, it's it's uh, I think the big big caveat here, um, and it's a big one is that as far as I'm concerned, and as far as I can judge, we're already in a recession. <laughs> Meanwhile, we have these uh, extreme price hikes. Um, it's, not, it's not an easy uh, scenario to maneuver for the European Central Bank. And that is why I ultimately think that something will break and force the European Central Bank back into a dovish stance. But um, I mean, I've been wrong-footed completely on that view over the past month here. So what I'm a bit uh, concerned about is that the risk premium you need to price in the front end of the European curve because of the absence of a clear guidance on you know what is the hiking path, what is the neutral rate, what is the terminal rate. Uh, it's probably going to be a bit higher than people think in the very first place, and then of course it's all contingent on you know recessionary uh, strength and dynamics in Europe that we'll have to look at, but. Equities last week, Andreas, changing topic for a second, they didn't trade like uh, there is a recession coming in Europe or a slowdown at all. We actually traded, believe it or not, the Fed pivot because yes. Bostic come to the wires, is a non-voter, but he said that, you know, they, they can pause in September. It's, uh, you know, the economy is slowing down. And so despite Powell had come up with the Wall Street Journal interview a few days earlier, which was pretty clear to me, uh, relatively hawkish. Uh, you know, maybe some overcrowding in positions led to quite a reprice, tighter in credit spreads, higher inequities, all led by multiples, which led to a pretty sharp financial conditions easing over the last 10 days, which, if I can remember correctly, it's not exactly what the Federal Reserve is looking for. No, <laughs> exactly not. Um, I mean, when multiples expand, it also means uh, easier financial conditions. And ultimately high inflation, uh, at least if um, this line of event um, works out as usual. So the issue for the Federal Reserve here is that as soon as they start talking about talking about pausing, then they actually spur risk taking again, which is quite yeah. interesting, even despite the high inflation and, and all that. Uh, but I, I would like to point your attention to one data print uh, that was very important from the week, uh, because in sharp contrast to what we see in Europe right now, I actually think that we have very compelling evidence that the inflation has peaked in the US. Um, so let me uh, give you a few examples of why. Um, the PCE price measure, uh, basically the one that the Federal Reserve looks at, um, printed at 4.9% in core prices um, compared to 5.2% the month prior. Uh, and if we look at the momentum in that core measure, um, for, for example, on a three-month versus three-month basis, uh, then there is a clearly slowing tendency in the, um, in the core measure of these uh, PCE prices. And why do I put more emphasis on PCE prices compared to, to CPI prices, the other inflation index? Well, basically, as the um, weights in the PCE index, they are updated much more frequently and they will much quicker adapt to a scenario with a changing consumption pattern due to inflation. And right now we have a record high spread between the CPI, uh, which is printing much, much higher than the PCE, as a consequence of um, the uh, various weights in the two indices. Uh, and I feel very certain 
that when the spread becomes really wide between the CPI and the PCE, that is the first signal you want to see um, uh, before calling a peak in inflation, because it essentially means that demand is slowing very fast by the end of so, the day. Andreas, global macro is always fun because now we're even talking about the three-month, three-month annualized rate of European inflation printing in double digits mm. against your thesis brought forward that the three-month, three-month annualized rate of core PCE in America is actually slowing down. So yes. you have to be so nimble that you have now to assume that European inflation momentum can uh, exceed the US inflation momentum and therefore that temporarily the European Central Bank can play the hawk role. I mean, can you, have an ima- can you even imagine a year or two years ago that the European Central Bank will out-hawk the Federal Reserve, even for in, on, on a temporary uh, time frame. I mean, global macro is so fun. No, yeah, exactly. And I think it was yesterday when we spoke, uh, Alfonso, you said to me that I needed uh, to accept that the central bank in Europe will have to turn hawkish. And I said to you, mark this date because an Italian is telling a Dane to expect the European central bank to hike interest rates. I've never heard that before, <laughs> to be very honest. But, well, um, I will... I was labeled Andreas as the least Italian Italian they had never ever met in the real money community in Europe. As in, I was always very you know very uh, honest about the Italian prospects and the fact that Europe has a very difficult task of setting monetary policy for nineteen jurisdictions, not only for Italy. So hey, if they need to turn hawkish, they need to turn hawkish. And, but one thing I've noted um, in terms of the FX effects of uh, of this relative pricing of the European Central Bank versus the Federal Reserve is that the, the euro didn't really gain from that very, very strong inflation number in Europe. Uh, so there is, at least in FX space, a tendency to view the situation with a bit of hesitancy when it comes to the response from the European Central Bank still. We've had a member of the board out saying today that 50 basis points hikes are now in play. Uh, I I guess you were on the look for that. Uh, But we still haven't got the key members of the board out saying something after this uh, extreme print um, Mm -hmm. on on, on the inflation front. Uh, So I personally still have my doubts that they will act as they should. I think they will be very defensive over summer compared to what they could do. The action in euro dollar is so interesting, Andreas, because at the end of the day, the euro is also strongly influenced by the horrible terms of trade that Europe has to face because it has to import a gazillion of energy and commodities that it doesn't produce. And all of a sudden, the price of those is becoming more expensive, which makes the euro on a term of trade basis cheaper. Look, it has to be cheaper for things to balance. So it's, it's a lot of things going on in cross-currents. Um, but yeah, I mean, European central bankers are not known to be proactive and to put themselves ahead of the curve, but now they have quite a task to, uh, to achieve. At the same time, I would like to um, bring to the attention to uh, the audience that today we started officially quantitative tightening. And actually, we didn't start quantitative tightening because the quantitative tightening process is about not rolling over at the beginning about 30 billion of treasuries that will mature and 15 billion of uh, MBS, if I'm correct on the numbers. But the point is that there will generally treasuries mature mid-month and MBS mature at the end of the month. Mm -hmm. So for the first 15 days, there's going to be basically no uh, shrinkage in in the Fed balance sheet or so on the asset side. Uh, and I will be hearing a lot of people going on Twitter and telling me that the Fed is lying to us. They told us they would start QT, but they haven't started for at least a couple of weeks because there's going to be no bonds maturing. But actually, Alfonso, the balance sheet size at the latest weekly update fell just a tiny little bit. 
uh, due to a few technicalities, we won't spend time on them today. But uh, I was very happy to see that because I've been saying uh, throughout the spring that you should expect the balance sheet size to become smaller. Uh, and oh my God, the troll army I've had after me with that. Um, also due to the fact that tapering um, is a bit lacked uh, in its nature um, due to the fact that um, you basically settle, for example, mortgage-backed securities with the time lag. So it means that from the time that the Fed actually tells you that now we will buy less, uh, then it takes, uh, say, a month or so before you actually see it. Um, so that is uh, the reason why um, some accounts tend to get wrong-footed on that Federal Reserve debate. But I think that QT process is important when it comes to the relative outlook for the euro versus the dollar. And I think that exact QT process is the reason why I still remain positive on dollar versus euro. All right, Andreas, enough with our banter and macro blubbering. It's time to call in somebody who has a wealth of experience, about 40 years in trading. He's a guy who traded prop and then started a hedge fund and then sold a hedge fund. Uh, he's just a great guy to have on the macro trading floor. So looking forward to jump to the interview. Now it's time to introduce our guest, Nick Jivanovic, um, a retired hedge fund manager and a splendid risk taker. Nick, it's, uh, it's good to have you here. Thank you very much, guys. Nice to be with you. Uh, and finally, we have a guest from the UK, actually. Uh, so we got most of Europe represented now. Uh, those wanting to leave the EU <laughs> in the UK, those who cannot leave the EU, you, Alfonso from Italy, and then uh, those who are left to pay the bill, me in Denmark. So uh, uh, the whole of Europe is now represented. Um, but Nick, before we get to the whole debate on, um, on the macro environment, um, please tell us a bit about your background and your experience as a risk taker. Sure. Um, now, this is going to date me a bit. I started trading, actually, uh, I've just worked it out in October of 1983. So I'm coming up to, um, you know, I've, what was that, coming up to 40 years? So um, it's uh, it's been a while um, and a long and interesting journey. I started at JP Morgan, then moved over to uh, Salomon Brothers and then via another couple of little detours to my own hedge fund, starting back in the early 1990s. And then I retired um, and I sold the hedge fund in September of 2003, thinking that I was hitting the top of the market. And I was hitting the top of the market in terms of spoos, but not in terms of hedge fund development because hedge funds just kept on going. So it just shows you I get some things right and some things very badly wrong. As everybody does, Nick. So appreciate it to have somebody that has traded for 40 years and still recognizes that there's a lot to learn and that uh, he will be wrong as any of us. So teach us something, Nick. Uh, let's talk about your uh, macro thesis that will bring us to your underlying macro trade at the end of the day. Where do you want to start? Well, um, let's start with inflation. I think there are, and probably the, the reason why you have me on is because I'm just about the only guy old enough to remember inflation. Um, I think inflation is, is misunderstood in terms of how it's conquered. Inflation is first and foremost a monetary phenomenon. 
um, and it's very difficult to um, to kill that dragon in one go. If you have a look at every time that inflation has manifested itself back from the 70s and then, you know, the very late 80s, beginning of the 90s, when we had another little blip in it, it's always taken far, far longer to conquer than the market A, expected, and B, the central banks expected. So it always takes two or three goes to actually bring it under control completely. And when the market tells me or the market pricing tells me that A, inflation is transitory, or B, that it's only going to take three to six months or maybe nine months to conquer, I am always very, very skeptical. Um, it always takes far longer than people think and far longer than central banks fear. So my theory is basically that with the economy that we have at the moment and with the kind of um, balance sheet that the consumers have and also that the corporates have, it's going to take a it's going to take much longer than the market is pricing to return to the uh, 2% or sub 2% inflation, core inflation rates that the central banks wish to achieve. Nick, um, why is it that inflation becomes sticky? I think that's a key question. It's a, um, I mean, the probably the easiest way to describe it would be uh, human greed. The uh, pricing is always sticky to the downside um, and corporates are much more willing to increase prices when they have pricing power than they are, you know, to decrease prices when other factors suggest that they could. They would much rather have... Uh, wider profit margins for a while by keeping prices higher than they should be than the other way around. That is just human nature. And if the market will pay those prices because of lack of alternative or whatever, um, then that is the way it'll continue. I, I think over the past few decades, you've had... Um, a lot of consolidation in a lot of industries, which makes it quite easy for companies to have pricing power and also reduces their need to bring down their profit margins unless they have very strong market forces working against them. I don't see that that is the situation that we're in at the moment. So I don't see that these uh, market adjustments are going to be instantaneous or quick. So I just see that the forces that are going to keep inflation stronger for longer are there. Uh, we could even go to globalization and, you know, is globalization taking a step backwards? Well, probably, yes, uh, we are going to have... Uh, the need to build supply chains which are more resilient in local areas, whether it be in Europe or in the US, but locally in any case. 
So all these factors, I think, are going to make it harder for inflation to come down as quickly as the central banks would want them to. Uh, I think it's as simple as that. I think it's uh, a question of human nature and uh, the, uh, the macro headwinds. And therefore, I think, you know, as I said, it's going to take a long time for us to return to the levels that we had back in, um, you know, a, a, even a year ago. And just as there's a whole generation of traders who can't remember anything but negative interest rates in Europe, so there's going to be another generation of traders who will remember nothing but extremely positive interest rates. These things come in, uh, you know, come, come in cycles, and I think that cycle is upon us. Nick, may I ask you to elaborate for a second on a sentence you borrowed from uh, somebody a bit older than you, even when you said that inflation is uh, always, uh, first and foremost, a monetary phenomenon, I think you said, quoting you. Um, so can you elaborate a bit on that? Why would that part make inflation sticky this time and how? Um, it's for the same reason as it always has been. There's too much money chasing around too few goods. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I'm not a, although I did economics at, uh, at university, I, I'm not an economist. Uh, that is a question that probably an economist would answer far better than I can. But it just seems to me that we had a, um, a perfect cocktail of situation that allowed the inflation genie to come out of the bottle. We had the massive stimuli packages that were passed, you know, everywhere, but especially in the US. Uh, we've had the, um, the unfortunate circumstance of the war in, um, in Ukraine, which has um, uh, developed the commodity super cycle. And also we've had the, uh, the, the supply chains completely wrecked by COVID and these new lockdowns in China. Whether these things abate or not, yes, they will abate, but, they, but the, um, the underlying forces will not come in, back into equilibrium for many years, I fear. Uh, one remark in, in terms of what you said on uh, a whole generation of, uh, of traders um, living in a world of negative interest rates. When I started initially at the trading floor at Nodea uh, in the fixed income group, uh, I told my boss to rename it to the fixed expense group because I simply <laughs> thought that it would last forever. Uh, but um, uh, it seems like I've been wrong-footed on that view. And I want to touch a bit upon that because um, it seems to me that there is a generational cliff on this question. Um, Alfonso and I, we're both in the early 30s. We struggle to envisage this regime shift towards high inflation numbers over time. Uh, what do you make of this generational cliff in this debate? I remember when gilts were trading in double figures. <laughs> and, uh, and it was great. And I remember when uh, US treasuries were in double figures. Um, and, and really there was a, you know, it, that was a word world when Tina did not exist. There was a very good alternative to equities in those days, and that was treasuries. 
uh, or corporates or, or, or many other things or fixed income in general. Um, really, the uh, that disappeared, and I must admit that my own uh, portfolio had to reflect it. Uh, for the best part of 10 years now, uh, I've been uh, almost completely out of bonds and everything that I owned was, was equities because I didn't, you know, there, there really was no alternative as far as I could see for my own portfolio. Fortunately, that now is beginning to uh, go the other way. I don't think we're anywhere near an equilibrium as yet. Um, and it's going to take a while for, uh, for traders to actually adjust to not only uh, positive, um, uh, positive nominal rates, but also to positive real rates of return in, in bonds. It's going to be a process. Uh, and that is why I, I'm, I love selling short dated bonds, both in, uh, in the US and in Europe, uh, because I just think that that process is going to take a long time and will be uh, with us for certainly for the next three, four, five years. Looking at nominal yields, can simply you know break them down into inflation expectation, real yields, and some sort of term premium if you go all the way down the curve, right? Just to make it very simple as a breakdown. And so you said before, let's start from the inflation expectation front. You said before that the pricing of inflation going forward is very benign. So can you elaborate a bit on what the market is pricing in? Because before we start talking about trades, we should talk about probabilistic assessments that the market is making when it comes to inflation, real yields, and term premium, I would say. So what about inflation? What's the market pricing in right now? How do you see that? It's pricing in, I mean, if you look at five-year forward-forwards, what it's pricing in, 230, 240. Uh, basically, it hasn't, uh, in, in the US, it hasn't moved all year. Um, I think that is unlikely to be the situation in beginning of 2023 uh, or the middle of 2023. I think it's going to be above 3%. Could I be wrong? Absolutely. Don't, don't, you know, I'm, I'll be the first to admit that I, I could easily be wrong. But I would contend that the, uh, the tail, call it the right tail for yields and the left tail for prices, is too thin at the moment. Um, it, the, the likelihood that we get one more sharp run up in prices uh, for the whole curve both in the US and in the um, um, and in Europe is much higher than the probabilities of the option prices are pricing in at the moment. So Nick, breaking, breaking it down for a second on inflation pricing front. So the long dated inflation forwards, both in Europe and in the US are pricing uh, inflation between 2027 and 2032 to be around about 2%, 2.2, 2.3, 2.5, but around about 2%. And the distribution is also pretty much centered around that. If we look at inflation pricing over the next year in the US, we're pricing 4.5%-ish by inflation swaps. But if you look at one year, one year forward, so you go all the way to 2024, this immediately reverts back to levels that are already below 3%. So it's, it's pretty benign from that perspective. Is that a fair summary? That's a very fair summary, and I think that that kink is going to get taken out. 
I think the odds are very low that we reprice in 2024 or, or late 2023. I think the inflation is going to last far longer. It's going to be far more stubborn. And I think the only way the Fed or the ECB is going to finally conquer inflation is the only way that Volcker did it, and that's actually to go for a negative yield curve. Uh, I've never seen inflation that wasn't killed by a negative yield curve. Even if you look at the period from 1987 when rates started rising because inflation started rising um, and uh, you know, culminating with, with inflation top around 1990, if you look at that period, even then, uh, rates went negative. Uh, the yield curve, sorry, went negative. Uh, and, uh, and, I, and I don't think that the current yield curve, you know, what are we, two stands in the States around what, 25 basis points, we were very, very briefly negative, uh, but, you know, we're there for like a couple of days. Um, and and what is it in um, in Europe? It's about sixty five basis points, sixty three basis points, and like that two tens. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that those are levels which are inflation killers. Uh, the only thing that's going to kill inflation is going to be the central bank hiking rates above uh, where long term rates are. Um, that's the way I look at it. I, I haven't I haven't experienced a period of inflation that wasn't killed by a negative yield curve. Can it happen? Of course it can happen. Anything can happen. But I think the odds are lower than the odds of it having to happen again. Nick, let's assume for a second that you are right uh, in your theory that the market is severely underestimating the risk of inflationary pressures over the coming, say, three, four, five years. Um, which kind of repercussions do you think that uh, will have for asset allocation in general? How would you position for such an environment on a broader scale? If you have a look at uh, forward expectations, the uh, earnings expectations have not come up, come down at all. In fact, they have risen. So uh, let's say at the beginning of the year, we're looking at uh, S&Ps returning 225 for the year, 225 bucks, and now we're in the 230s, you know, high 230s, 238 or whatever it is. Uh, so really everything uh, has been multiple compression. All the, uh, all, every single penny of the 13% that we have uh, come down in terms of S&Ps has been due to the bonds going up in yield and therefore compressing the, the multiples. I think that that is more likely than not to continue in that kind of magnitude. Um, why? Because I don't think that we are in a position as yet or won't be for several months where the US consumer or US corporates uh, are ready to throw in the, the, the towel on growth. Can growth be slightly lower than, or earnings be slightly lower than the 238 that we are pricing at the moment? Okay, we can go down to 230, 225, whatever that, you know, whatever we, we get to. But the next leg down, I think it's still going to be caused by 
more multiple compression because I think bond yields are likely to go to three and a half. Long bonds are likely to go to three and a half percent, and that's going to get us down another, I don't know, um, let's call it another 600, 700 points in terms of uh, equity or S&Ps. If they're trading 4,100 now, they'll be trading 3,500 or something like that. That is the kind of move that I'm looking for. But I still think that it's going to be, the, lo the, the loss is going to be greater in bonds than it will be in equities. So, Nick, the first thing that comes to mind now is that we talked about inflation being priced way too benign uh, compared to your base case scenario. Then we're talking about central banks that would have to go with a Volcker-like reaction function, if you are right about that, that inflation being sticky, which means that they'll have to raise you know, policy rates to levels that are uh, sufficient to actually convince the market they're putting themselves ahead of the curve. And you, are, you have been referring to US a lot in this discussion, but if I move a bit geographically wise and I move back to good old Europe and the ECB, that is really not used to do such things like putting themselves ahead of the curve. How do you see these guys doing in this environment? The, the reason why I refer to, to the US mainly is because I live here and I trade mainly US assets. But now, uh, but I... My view of, of Europe is quite simplistic. Europe is a much more open economy than the US and therefore much more exposed to commodity pricing and the effect of everything on the euro. I think Europe is actually in a harder spot than, than the US. And if, this, if, the, uh, if the Fed is going to have to hike to levels that the market is not expecting, I think that probably is um, ha will have to be reflected in spades in uh, by the ECB. I think the uh, the euro or the level of the exchange rate rather is far more important to Europe than it is to the US because the US has the reserve currency, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and I don't think that. If the ECB wants to tackle inflation, they can just allow the euro to depreciate forever. I think we are probably at the limits of what the ECB feels comfortable with the with the market pricing in in terms of uh, in terms of ECB uh, in terms of euro devaluation, um, and therefore, uh, as we all know, what are exchange rates set by well. Primarily, one of the largest components is the interest rate differential. I don't think they can allow the interest rate differential between the, uh, the Eurozone and the US to become much larger than it is at the moment. I mean, what do we have a, as a differential in two-year notes um, at the moment uh, in um, between the US and uh, so what is it? It's about 50 basis points in, in chats in, in, um, in, and it's what 270 in, uh, in, in, in the US. So we have, uh, you know, so that's 100 and let's call it 170 basis points between friends. I think that that inflate, that differential is going to have to be held constant or brought in to around 150 basis points. 
um, eventually. And when you think about it, if you, you know, you, you're always uh, going on about uh, what are neutral rates, if you say that the neutral rate in the States is two and a half, and the neutral rate in in the uh, in, in in the EU, it's around one one and a half. Well, that's you know, that's the kind of differential that I would have thought is the right kind of differential for for interest rate differentials between the EU and the US. I see no reason why uh, you know the differential in two years shouldn't come down to around one hundred and fifty basis points. So, Nick, let's boil it all down to a trade idea. It seems to me as if you are kind of moving towards suggesting that the European Central Bank will have to act. Uh, so how do we trade this scenario? I started trading it um, like, uh, you know, all good traders far too early. Um, and um, and I got the first move absolutely right uh, when it went from minus 70 to to zero very, very quickly. And I made, you know, touch with decent money there. And then the, uh, the nasty Ruskies screwed me as well when, uh, when they invaded, um, uh, when they invaded Ukraine and I had to um, scramble to get that trade back. And I've never been able to get it back in the same kind of size that I had it before. And I keep on trying and I keep on doing it, but I don't, I never do it in, in enough money as it were, which is very annoying. Um, and basically I, I keep on trading it from the short side and I'm talking about shats much more than uh, than buns or even bobble. To me, the shats is going to trade the same way as the two-year traded, i.e. it's going to stick around 35 basis points, then it's going to stick around 50 basis points for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then in the space of two, two months, it's going to go from 50 basis points to 150 basis points and from 150 basis points to 250 basis points. Um, when the short, set, short ends move, they move far more aggressively than the long ends ever do. And I think we are getting closer to a timing. Now, I, do I know what the timing is? I don't. But I just know that at some stage, the ECB, probably uh, slightly after the Fed, is going to recognize that this gradualist approach of doing 25 or maybe even 50 basis points and then waiting and looking is actually uh, not going to cut it. Uh, inflation is going to remain uh, at levels far above what they are expecting, far above the, uh, you know, what they are comfortable with. And therefore, at some stage, they're going to have to really, you know, press the accelerator. Uh, and really hike 100 basis points within the period of probably two or three months. So, Nick, let me see if I understand this correctly. The neutral rate in the Eurozone is roughly, let's say, 1.5%, roughly, nominal terms, nominal terms. Let's say that, right? Which would make an, uh, our star at negative 50 basis point, negative 75 basis points, something like that. Okay. Now you're saying, as the Federal Reserve was forced to move their stance towards hiking above neutral rates, the ECB will have to do the same, 
And then on a magnitude basis, they will have to do even more because they're a more open economy, more exposed to inflationary pressures from commodity imports and so on and so forth. Which means that actually the front end of the, of the European curves will have to imply that the ECB has to hike all the way to 2%, 2.5% or whatever that is, compared to today's pricing, which is for up to 1.5% over the next few years. So both the intensity, the magnitude and the timing of that hikes being priced is not enough to compensate against the tail risk. That's what you're saying. And that's why you want to short the shots. Yes. Um, do I want to short the shots at any price? Uh, no. I want to short the shots at about 35 basis points. Um, 35 basis points is where we've traded um, a lot over the course of the past two months. Um, and I, I think the... Uh, likelihood or the odds of us going negative again on the shats is almost zero. Uh, but I'm, you know, I'm I'm a very careful trader, and the way I structure my trades, it's always to have at least a two to one to three to one risk reward, but also to have very limited downside. The good thing about shats, I, I'm, I'm not going to say that it's got a very liquid options market, but it's got a uh, good enough options market that you can um, uh, that you, that you can use uh, where the pricing is at the moment you can uh, uh, you can price that falling below zero zero percent very easily every time the market gets to 35 37 38 basis points I keep on reshorting the shots looking for it to get to above 1% and eventually very close to 2%. Um, and I'm very opportunistic about it and I keep on doing it and I keep on doing it because I'm, it's my highest conviction trade at the moment by, by a long, long way. Nick, we also always allow our guest an early get out of jail option. Uh, so if we assume that you're wrong on this trade, why could that be? I, um, it's one of those, it's, it's very difficult to see what's going to make this trade uh, vastly wrong. Um, and A, because it's capped by, uh, the, the loss potential is capped by the, by the options that I do against it. What could happen? Uh, could uh, oil prices now come off 30, 40%? Yes, they could. I think the likelihood is very, very low. Uh, could the uh, could the reopening uh, in in China in general uh, somehow get rid of all the supply uh, bottlenecks? Yes, it could. Um, but all these things are very low likelihood. Uh, events. I think the odds of all these things happening all at once are very, very low. Um, and the uh, the odds of the uh, of, of the central banks uh, being able to drive inflation with the gradualist approach that they have back down to their targets, I think, is also very, very low. You would have to have a combination of so many factors hitting on so many fronts for this to be a very bad trade um, that I really, uh, I don't want your get out of jail free card. 
I, I'd, I'd much pay, I'd much, uh, I'd much rather pay the market its premium and allow myself to be in this trade for the next six, nine months, a year, however long it takes. I, I you know, I'd much rather lose money uh, than uh, than not make it by taking your get out of jail free card. Nick. Uh... Thanks for the time you spent with us and for the macro thesis and the trade idea. We always um, also give the chance to our guests to share uh, for our audience where, where the listeners can find more about your work, if they want to follow you, if they want to find more about Nick Ivanovic, where can they do that? Well, I um, about it's now seven years ago, I started a um, little website called charityhedgefund.com. Well, I upload every quarter uh, my stream of what I tell the people who follow me uh, there to um, how my day-to-day -day thinking is evolving and why, what current market pricing is saying and why I think it's saying it. And, that's, and what I do is I structure my trades publicly and I tell people this is what I think, why I think it, and how I'm structuring my trades. I'm a great options player I always prefer to have my trade structured with options a eh, because it allows you to sleep well uh, but also because you can have much more leverage via options with far less risk so um, that's where I am people are welcome to uh, to follow me there if they like I also do a weekly video nearly every week I didn't do one last week because I was ill um, but nearly every week I do a video uh, which I post and people are, uh, you know, uh, can follow me there on riskdials.com. Uh, they get four vid videos per week, uh, per, per month. Uh, and as my, uh, as my levels and as my thoughts evolve, I change uh, the levels that I wish to trade in all asset classes. Nick, it was a great, great pleasure hosting you at the Macro Trading Floor. Thanks so much for, for being here today. Thank you, guys. So, guys, it's uh, June the 1st, 2022. We interviewed Nick Givanovic, and Nick's trade idea is effectively to short the Schatz, which is the two-year German government bond. There is a future underlying it. There are also proxy ways to try and replicate the trade via ETF. We're going to talk about those later. For now, it's time to talk about the trade idea itself and the macro thesis behind it, Andrea. So what do you think of uh, of the ECB reaction function, basically? Well, I'm, I'm not convinced that the European Central Bank uh, will, will act uh, as they need to. Uh, and there are a couple of reasons why I think it will be very tricky for them to do so. First being that uh, the Italian bond spread versus Germany uh, and the overall uh, debt load of Italy uh, and, and current payments given the current yield levels bring Italy very close to paying thresholds. Uh, at least we've seen them puking um, at, at, at these yield levels before. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, if they keep pushing on the agenda of um, no balance sheet increases, uh, interest rate hikes, etc. It will put a massive pressure on Southern Europe. Um, the other thing is that I think we are already in a recession in core countries in the Eurozone, which makes it tricky to, 
to to act very aggressively against inflation. Uh, we had um, retail sales numbers out of Germany this morning. Uh, I think they were down 5.4% month over month, uh, and they are now in negative territory versus one year ago. Um, if we had similar numbers out of the US, uh, negative retail sales on a monthly basis, then I wouldn't be uh, scared at all of calling a recession in the US economy. It's a bit trickier in the in the German economy due to the export nature of it. But um, I think at least we're very close to something very, very bad on growth, which makes it tricky for the European Central Bank to act aggressively. Uh, so I'm I'm not as certain as 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 Nick is, um, but I have to admit that um, it's a very tricky scenario to forecast uh, right now because the outcome space is very very wide. So from my side, Andreas, I already have a trade on that captures the tighter monetary policy stance from the ECB, which is to short BTPs and be long bonds, because I think as a second round effect, Italy and any other peripheral country is going to suffer from this removal of accommodation pretty sharp removal. So I'm not going to double up on the trade, but the direction of the trade is clearly familiar towards my macro stance that the ECB is in a very tight spot. And we discussed that as well bilaterally in other, in other occasions, Andreas, where if you look at the incentive scheme of a policymaker, it's generally to make sure that things remain in control. And right now, inflation is not under control in Europe, and it hasn't been for a while. And uh, losing credibility and not having a strong reaction function when things are getting out of control is exactly the worst thing that can happen to a central banker. So there are moments where you can accommodate linearly or tighten linearly, and there are moments where you need to do a bit more. So also said, put yourself ahead of the curve or behind the curve voluntarily. And you know the, the odds are rapidly shifting towards ECB having to at least put themselves a bit ahead of the curve to show to markets that there is a commitment there and also to make sure that the euro dollar doesn't uh, doesn't go south that much um again it's just i agree with you that uh, the weakest balance sheet sectors in europe will actually suffer out of this monetary policy stance we are likely already in a recession i tweeted i think a month ago that my forward looking indicators a bunch of them i look at were already pointing to a recession in europe we are having further evidence of that you talked about um real retail sales in Germany today. So do you want to give the audience a bit, uh, you know, your reading on, on that number from today? I, I mean, you don't uh, necessarily inflation adjust retail sales. Uh, so uh, if we assume that we look at the volumes being bought in the retail shops, uh, then I um, I would have <laughs> assumed that they um, turned very negative this month due to the price pressures that we see in goods. Um, and it's essentially kind of the same picture that we see in the US on a nominal level. So the uh, spended amount of dollars is still increasing. Uh, but if you look at the volumes beneath that surface, uh, they're slowing. Uh, so it essentially means that demand destruction is already happening as far as I can see, um, which which makes the situation much trickier to handle for central banks. Um, given that, at least in Europe, there are no signs of prices slowing down right now. Yeah. So we are in a situation where probably DCB somehow forced to try and put themselves ahead of the curve to send a forward guidance and a commitment signal to markets. But the reality of, of growth in Europe are pretty bad, as we are seeing already. Um, when it comes to what's priced in, because as you, as you short shots, you basically have to look at what the market is pricing in 
uh, in terms of probabilistic assessment against you know your, your idea, and you are basically going to be trading um, an ECB reaction function which is more hawkish than what's already priced in. That's how you make money effectively out of this trade. And um, if I look at what's priced in, as per today, there we have ECB deposit rate by the end of the year being priced already above 50 basis point, which means it's more than 100 basis point hikes being priced in at this stage, uh, which probably is going to be 25 in July. And then in September, we are already debating whether it's 25 or 50 basis point, but there is a healthy 100 basis point priced in between now and the end of the year. And then in 2023, because Schatz is a two-year bond, interestingly, there is some more priced in up until a terminal rate of roughly 1.5% in nominal terms. That's what's priced in today. So then your question has to be, will the market be able and willing to push this terminal rate pricing or the pace of the tightening to higher levels such that you can make money by shorting shots despite of what's priced in today? What do you make of that? Well, that's the exact reason why I don't, I, I don't like this trade. Um, I mean, I can envisage a move from the European Central Bank to positive territory, uh, but I struggle to see a feasible scenario with uh, nominal uh, rates being above one to one and a half percent um, as a consequence of what I listed um, already, uh, the recessionary uh, tendencies in, in, in demand uh, and the issues related to Southern European debt. Uh, I I sincerely don't think that the real um, uh, rate uh, can 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 go as high as that. Um, it, it of course depends on the inflation expectation development, um, whether this will turn into a very ugly move in real rates as well. But ultimately, that is probably what they need uh, to orchestrate, right? A move in, in real interest rates, not just nominal bond yields, because the move in nominal bond yields even with the move that we've seen so far this year, um, adjusted for inflation, it's not been it's not been a, a massive move adjusted for inflation, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, real rates in Europe have gone up. Obviously, so nominals have reacted a bit faster than inflation expectations. But if you look at forward real interest rates in Europe, they're still negative. So one might want to argue that there is a bit more to be done there. The thing I learned uh, trading fixed income, Andreas, is that you don't need the central bank to effectively hike. No. You don't need the terminal outcome, basically, to mm. be there. You need the market to believe they're going to hike further, which makes already the pricing go your way at the end of the day. So one thing can be basically risk premium in this trade. We debated that uh, the ECB doesn't have a dot plot. The ECB doesn't tell you what neutral rates are. They, they are very vague about what does it mean to get ahead of the curve, which might be a reason why people might want to be more conservative with their pricing, conservative on the upside, because they just don't know, they, they get much less guidance than from uh, from the US, for example. Uh, but if we look at the ECB from roughly 2015 until today, um, then every time they've needed to act on too low inflation, they've basically brought an aircraft carrier to a knife fight <laughs> every time, right? I mean, they've just thrown gazillions of, uh, of, of euros at the market, uh, liquidity packages, TL throws, uh, you name it. Um, they've done everything that they, um, they can to support markets, uh, but I'm still not convinced that they act with the same kind of prudency in the other direction. Far from convinced. Yeah, we're gonna see how that works. Now, when it comes to the implementation of the trade, Obviously, the easiest way is just to trade either the options underlying or the future itself on the two-year German government bond. It's the Schatz future. You can either trade that outright short or you can buy some options and you know structure it, as Nick said, 
with a certain payoff that protects your downside as well. That's the, the levered version of the trade. When it comes to the ETF version, uh, I don't think there is one uh, easy inverse shots ETF out there. At least I couldn't find it. So then we have to go via proxies, which, disclaimer, is always very complicated because you're working on correlations here and you mm. should always be careful about that. Um, even if the curve would invert, Andreas, I would say that if Nick is right and the market has to go and price ECB rates at 2% or 2.5%, then even if the curve inverts, then the boons have to reprice up to. And there is an inverse ETF for the bond without leverage, uh, which basically d- delivers you a short exposure to the German 10-year German government bond, which is the bond, and it's called B-U-N-S ETF, BUNS. So it's basically bond short ETF. That would be one way. Again, it's a proxy. And if the curve would invert, you, you would obviously not get as much benefit as shorting these as per shorting the shots, but at least it's an inverse ETF. Yeah, and um, just to comment on on, on the curvature, uh, I actually think for professionals, um, the idea of flattening um, the 210 space in, in the European curve makes a whole lot of sense into this environment, even with with the viewpoint that I uh, that I hold on, on the European Central Bank. Uh, but another way of proxy playing this bet is via uh, an FX bet. Uh, I am personally long dollar versus the UUP ETF, but this exact trade that Nick suggested um, actually points in the exact opposite direction <laughs> for for the dollar versus the euro, um, because the European Central Bank will move ahead of the Federal Reserve in terms of tightening, uh, and that um, that could be played via uh, the so-called L. EUP ETF, uh, which is a long euro versus uh, the dollar um, proxy position via an ETF. Uh, so that's the FX implementation of uh, of the view that uh, Nick Giovanni is presented. Well, Andreas, I would say that uh, the people that have listened to this hour-long podcast are our heroes. Thank you guys for supporting us. Um, in, in any case, we always invite you to give us feedback, comment, give us reviews, Uh, subscribe to any podcast app just keep on supporting us we love that we are very thankful for your support yeah thank you again for listening to us (laughs) and and ultimately today i'll say that it was an extremely compelling interview with nick but oh boy i hope he's wrong (laughs) let me conclude like that i i wish you all the best out there and then we see you again next sunday thank you so much for listening 